You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. A special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. You can find out how you can support our show by visiting patreon.com slash the Cyberwire. A new campaign targets humanitarian organizations with North Korean fish bait. Memcrash is now being exploited by criminal extortionists. It's time for spring break, but not the fun kind. Equifax losses from last year's breach are said to mount. Germany says it detected the compromise of a secure government network before too much damage was done. They don't offer official attribution, but everyone else says it was the Russians. The Russians say they didn't do it. And President Putin deplores yelling and hollering in the U.S. Congress. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 5th, 2018. McAfee researchers report finding a new campaign that targets international humanitarian aid organizations. The actor behind the operation is not specified, although McAfee believes it to be a Korean speaker. The militia's documents are baited with news about North Korean relief organizations. McAfee ties one persona, Snoopy Killer at Mail.ru, to the operation. Memcrash distributed denial-of-service attacks have apparently been criminalized. DDoS attackers seek to extort cryptocurrency from victims. Akamai, who followed the DDoS campaigns closely and played a principal role in GitHub's swift recovery from what's being called the largest DDoS attack on record, has spotted extortion notes buried in the attack traffic. The Hoods are asking for Monero, which appears attractive to them because of its greater relative anonymity than competing cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Researchers at LGTM have discovered a vulnerability in the widely used Pivotal Spring web development framework. The issue, which they're calling Spring Break, is said to be an easily exploitable arbitrary command execution bug. The vulnerability is similar to problems with Apache struts that, going unpatched, were exploited in the Equifax breach of 2017. And speaking of Equifax, its breach may prove to become the most expensive hack yet recorded. CRN reports that the company's breach-related costs, as disclosed in a Friday earnings conference call, could rise to $435 million by the end of 2018. This estimate comes on top of last week's news that almost 2.5 million more consumers than previously known had been affected by the breach. More affected individuals may come to light as the long process of investigation continues. Germany's Interior Ministry says that relatively early detection of intrusion into a sensitive network averted what could have been considerably more extensive damage than the government sustained. The spokesman declined to offer attribution, but unofficial consensus is that the hack was a Russian operation. Russia's foreign ministry denies any involvement and cites the incident as another case of Western governments reflexively and in bad faith blaming Moscow for anything that goes wrong in cyberspace. Russia's President Putin offered a similar response to U.S. concerns about election hacking. He wants to see the evidence. It's a lot of, quote, yelling and hollering in the United States Congress, says Mr. Putin. To be sure, there is a lot of yelling and hollering on Capitol Hill, but there's more to Russian election interference than that. Anyway, he'd like to see the accusations forwarded to Russian authorities through official channels, because, of course, he's solidly committed to the rule of law, or something, Mr. Putin said in an interview on NBC Friday, 
With all due respect for Congress, you must have people with legal degrees. Investigation of Russian influence operations, which aren't seriously in doubt, have become, observers lament, increasingly partisan, with yelling and hollering across the aisle. Meanwhile, leaked documents are thought to provide some insight into the operations of Russian troll farms and their objectives. Those objectives appear, as always, to include the overarching goal of fomenting mistrust. Some think they see more specific economic objectives as well. The U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Science, Space, and Technology released a majority report last Thursday in which they alleged that Russian social media exploitation was engaged in attempts to suppress U.S. fossil fuel production. The report itself notes that the Russians are, quote, intent on exploiting existing divisions and social movements in the United States, end quote. That seems right. The social media engagement on energy development does seem in some respects difficult to distinguish from the general goal of creating chaos, but there appears to have been some interest on the trolls' part in inhibiting natural gas pipeline development. Still, in this case, it's difficult to separate signal from noise. The troll farm was certainly busy on the social media front, and it remains unclear just how many followers they attracted. Last fall, Facebook told California Democrat Senator Feinstein that, quote, approximately 1.8 million people followed at least one Facebook page associated with the Internet Research Agency, end quote, that is, the big St. Petersburg troll farm. But Wired reports that a researcher at Columbia University's Toe Center for Digital Journalism, Jonathan Albright, thinks that in fact Facebook has considerably underestimated those numbers, and that it really has no idea how many humans followed the trolls, because it never really looked into the trolls' Instagram accounts. Albright has, and he estimates that the answer is in the millions. And what about those trolls, the ones from the Internet Research Agency, who were indicted as a result of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation? They're an interesting mixed bag, according to an account in Fifth Domain. They're described as nine-to-fivers, interested in building their careers and not terribly concerned about the nature of their work. A former employee of the Internet Research Agency, one who wasn't indicted, told the AP that her colleagues, quote, came to the factory, and thanks to their personal qualities and knowledge of English, they were rapidly promoted, end quote. Among them were a student of psychology with an interest in loneliness, a journalist who did stand-up comedy on the side, and a wildlife management graduate from a little town near Irkutsk who apparently thought of himself as a Siberian Jay-Z. What are they teaching them at the Russian State Hydrometeorological University these days, anyway? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. 
visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Um, We saw a recent blog posting from Bruce Schneier uh, about the Section 702 reauthorization. This blog post is called After Section 702 Reauthorization. Uh, It was reauthorized. Uh, Can you take us through uh, some of the points that Bruce is making here and your thoughts as well? Sure. So he is sort of saying that This represents a bit of a loss for civil libertarians as it relates to uh, electronic surveillance for national security purposes. Um, The FISA Amendments Act was uh, originally enacted in 2008 with the support of then uh, Senator Obama. And we later found out through the Snowden disclosures in 2013 that it was being used to justify uh, warrantless collection both through our internet service providers and a program called PRISM and from our internet infrastructure, our internet backbone through what we call upstream collection. And one of the reasons it became so controversial is that even though the program is intended to collect the communications of non-U.S. persons who are located abroad, sometimes uh, the communications uh, of U.S. persons or even wholly between U.S. persons can get enraptured as part of this collection There's no judicial authorization required for this collection, and the the information, the communications, goes into a giant government database that is available to almost all of our intelligence agencies, meaning it's it's searchable. So if I were to talk to a potential terrorist target overseas, even if that conversation was something that I, I wanted to keep private, the government could collect that without any sort of judicial authorization, without a warrant, it would be searchable, and if they found evidence of a crime uh, in searching for that information, they could use it to prosecute me. After the Stone disclosures, and I think this blog post sort of gets at this point, there was a thought that we might be at this new moment where there's political will to curb these excesses of electronic surveillance and have a, a moment where we restore our civil liberties. The program was set to expire at the end of 2017. It was extended Uh, for a couple of weeks into January. And in January, they passed a reauthorization bill that only made very, very minor changes uh, to the law. One of the changes is that you now do need a warrant to search the database of collected communications if you are only doing so for the purposes of a criminal prosecution. Obviously, that's a giant loophole. Some of these intelligence agencies could certainly assert that they're only searching Uh, these databases for foreign intelligence information. And if they just happen to come across evidence of a crime, there's nothing stopping them from prosecuting. So it wasn't sort of the robust civil liberties protection that uh, those in favor of reforming Section 702 really desired, which is to have 
all searches of 702 data be subject to a to a warrant requirement. So another thing that this this blog post sort of gets at is what do we do now? Um, and I think that's a very important question. We've sort of tried the judicial route. Um, some of the the foremost protectors of civil liberties in our country, the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, have been filing lawsuits against this program for years, uh, and they've never been able really to get a case heard, uh, heard on the merits because, uh, as we've talked about before, it's very difficult to establish standing. It's very difficult for a person to establish that he or she has been uh, subject to that government surveillance because the information is classified. And you know now this program has been reauthorized for six years. Our, our political conscience has sort of moved on. And, you know, I, I can understand why this blogger feels a little hopeless. Frankly, I think it was a, a big setback for those who wanted um, wide, wide ranging and sweeping reforms to the surveillance program. And from a law enforcement side, uh, they make the case, I suppose, that uh, requiring oversight from uh, judicial oversight slows them down and, and uh, impedes their ability to do their work in a timely manner. Absolutely. And they have some uh, backing in our Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. There's been this long-running doctrine that if law enforcement or intelligence agencies have some sort of special need, apart from normal law enforcement needs of, you know, nabbing the criminals and putting them behind bars, then generally they do not need a warrant to conduct uh, that surveillance as long as the search is reasonable. And how we've uh, come to define reasonableness is balancing the security interests involved, so the government's interest in collecting that information, against the potential invasion of privacy. And, you know, trying to look at that objectively, we know that Section 702, at least according to some of our top intelligence professionals, has proven to be quite effective in thwarting uh, terrorist attacks and identifying targets. But, you know, you balance that against what I think is a, a major uh, inhibition on privacy and civil liberties. Um, the fact that there's this so-called backdoor search, the government uh, could incidentally collect the communication of a U.S. person without any prior judicial authorization. Uh, and if there's some sort of evidence of a crime contained in that information, they can make an arrest on what would otherwise be an unconstitutional uh, illegal search. So we, we balance that uh, those security interests against those privacy interests uh, I think there are arguments to be made uh, on both sides, but it's something that I think I would like to see either really adjudicated in a federal court or or sort of played out in the public sphere. Um, and I think this blogger and a lot of others thought we were really going to get that uh, debate in Congress uh, when Section 8702 was up for reauthorization at the end of 2017. But there was such a logjam of, of legislation that needed to get passed that I don't think um, Section 702 really got the time for the sort of protracted, uh, wide-ranging debate about electronic surveillance that I think many of us wanted to see on the House and Senate floor. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Mm-hmm.